0: This is uh, quite the um, challenging passage because people avoid it because it's a lot of measurements. And honestly, a lot of people say, well, we don't even understand what the millennial kingdom is all about. And, and why is there a temple in the millennial kingdom and all that? And truthfully, you know, we, we don't know a ton about why the Bible records this. But I'll tell you, I, you know, one of the things I love about the Bible is it's multifaceted Multi-layered, and um, it's like an onion. You know, you just peel layer on layer, and uh, and and the Bible's full of mysteries. I, I wonder, one of you guys have to figure out what are some of the deeper mysteries of the Book of Ezekiel. I get the sense that there is something you know that's deeper that that the Lord's going to reveal to us in His timing about the Book of Ezekiel. I'll even show you some of those hints maybe tonight. But that's one of the reasons people avoid the Book of Ezekiel, or churches, I should say, studying it because. Um, this last part, you're kind of like, man, I don't know. Uh, what is all this talk of measurement and the, the temple of, the, of Ezekiel? You know, what does it have to do with me? And uh, those can be challenging. But I appreciate that you're a group that's willing to go through the Bible and do some work and plow through these passages of Scripture. And you know what's funny is uh, we always feel blessed. The Word of God, even if you don't understand everything you're reading, guess what? It's still a blessing. It still just washes us in the water of the Word. There's something really cool about being in the scriptures uh, on these Wednesday nights. Glad you're with us both here and also online. Uh, glad, glad to do it. Let's get to it. Ezekiel chapter 42 is where we left off last Wednesday night. Ezekiel chapter 42. Now, last week we, we saw Mr. Measurement Man. Remember him? Measurement Man's running around measuring everything uh, and he's giving dimensions. And, uh, and we saw him both here in Ezekiel, we see him in the book of Revelation the measurement man, with his reed in his hand. Now, um, I didn't get too deep into the measurements, but there's some interesting you know, debate on what these various measurements are. But largely, uh, the measurements of, of the reed and the span and the uh, uh, hand breadth and all this stuff, it's generally agreed upon but there are some debates about that. But let me just kind of review that a little bit uh, tonight. I don't know if you guys can see that for how far off you are there. But, but uh, as you kind of zoom in, basically this, this shows a few things that are kind of important here. First of all, that the finger breadth is, is a measurement that you'll, you'll come across in ancient times. You'll see uh, the hand breadth, which is just the width of your hand kind of in narrow. But, but then the, the, the span is as far as you can get your pinky and your thumb apart. That's a span when you come across that in the Bible. Um, And so you also have uh, probably one of the more common measurements in the Bible. You read all about the cubit, uh, and that's from the man's hand to his elbow. So uh, that's kind of uh, the definition. Now, there's a few other terms that you should know about. Um, See those little sticks that are next to the guy in that picture um, and if you're watching online, you can see up close better than the rest of the people here. Sorry about that. But the, 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 there's, there's a long read and a short read, and there's debate on which one they actually used in ancient times. But um, all these have their various uh, uses for building and construction and all the measuring stuff. But that's, that, that's the kind of measurements that Ezekiel's talking about here. And that's kind of important to know if you're wanting to get a sense of the size of things. Now, one of the things we're going to see tonight that perhaps the millennial temple is going to be massive. I showed you a little bit of a picture of that or a, a rendition, I should say. Uh, uh, but one of the things that I didn't really show was the possible size of the actual courtyard. There's debate on that. and We'll get into that perhaps tonight. Um, but all that to say, uh, we're going to be back into that. If you missed last week, we we talked about the general buildings and the gates and the uh, some of the quarters there in the new temple of of the millennial kingdom. But now we get into the chamber area for the priests. um, And let's take a look at that. It's chapter uh, 42, verse one. It says, "'Then he brought me forth into the utter court "'and the way toward the north. "'And he brought me into the chamber "'that was over against the separate place, "'and which was before the building toward the north.'" Before the length of 100 cubits was the north door and the breadth was 50 cubits. Over against the 20 cubits, which were for the inner court, and over against the pavement, which was for the utter court, was gallery against gallery in three stories. And before the chambers was a walk of 10 cubits breadth inward, a way of one cubit, and their doors toward the north. Now the upper chambers were shorter for the galleries were higher than these, that the lower uh, and that the middle most of the building, for they were in three stories, but had not pillars as the pillars of the courts. Therefore the building was straightened for more than the lowest and the middle most from the ground. And the wall that was without over against the chambers toward the utter court on the free, pardon me, the fore part of the chambers, the length thereof was 50 cubits. For the length of the chambers that were in the utter court was 50 cubits and low before the temple were 100 cubits. And from, the, uh, from under these chambers was the entry on the east side as one goeth into them from the utter court. The chambers were in the thickness of the wall of the uh, court toward the east over against the separate place and over against the building. And the way before them was like the appearance of the chambers which were toward the north. As long as they, as broad as they and all in their goings out were both according to their fashions and according to their doors. And according to the doors of the chambers that were toward the south was a door. In the head of the way, even the way directly before the wall toward the east, as one entereth into them. <laughs> okay, you guys got this. There will be a test uh, after this. Okay, you say, well, "What's that all about?" Well, you know, it's interesting because really, this uh, this is just a, a narrative of a blueprint. Um, now, I don't know about you guys, but if you look at blueprints, uh, generally blueprints don't really intrigue me that much. I've seen a lot of blueprints in my days, as they call them, or you know plans for houses or buildings and what have you. But why in the world would anybody care to look or examine a, a blueprint? Well, I'll tell you who, if you're building a house, you'll wanna look at the blueprints. If it's your house, if it's, if, if it's somebody else's house, whatever, you can look at blueprints so you're blue in the face. Uh, but it's not gonna really do much for you if it's not your house. Well, you see, this house will be something you and I will have a part of in the millennial kingdom. Um, we're not gonna live here. We're not even really gonna serve here as much. That's gonna be for a different group of people we'll meet tonight, who those people are. But uh, we will be involved here. Uh, and, and the question is, will you know what this building is that we just described for you? Um, and, uh, and so all that to say, the, the interesting thing about this, this little thing that we just read is the two words in the King James there in verses 3 and verse 5. The word gallery or galler, galleries uh, there is an interesting word. It's really only used in this portion of the Bible. It's an ancient word. Uh, the word atuk is the Hebrew word, which is, is, is basically a stair stepped building. Um, maybe you saw my little chicken scratchings from my Bible up there <laughs> on the wall. Uh, that, that basically, here, I'll show you maybe a, a more of an up-close version of that. Uh, as we look at the temple that we looked at last week, um, this is that stair-stepped building um, that uh, is described here in this chapter, chapter 42. And it's the southern chambers for um, these priests, the Zadokians, the sons of Zadok. Uh, and we'll see the Zadokian priesthood here in a few minutes. But this, this stair-step building, the word atuk that we just looked at means like a, a building that looks like a stair-step. It's a very specific word uh, that's describing this kind of a building. So when you're in the millennial kingdom and you see this building, you will like, oh, I know what that building is. When you see the stair-step building, you'll know that's where the priests go and where they serve and what have you. Um, so all that to say, that's the, the atuk. Now. Um, that, that's my drawing from my Bible. There it is. I, I just clicked through it really quickly there, but uh, accidentally. But all that to say, um, now you say, Brett, again, this is, this is kind of a weird deal. I, I'm not sure I understand what the importance of this is. Well, why is there a place for the sons of Zadok to, to, to go? It's, it's a little bit like a locker room, if you would, where they're gonna go and change and cleanse after working in the temple. And there will be a sacrificial system in the millennial kingdom. And some people wonder, well, why will there be, if Jesus is in Jerusalem ruling and reigning from Jerusalem, what in the world will they be doing the sacrifice system? We talked about that a little bit uh, last time. That remember, um, you know, the, the Old Testament time period was where they did a sacrificial system from the temple to look ahead into future when Jesus the lamb would be uh, sacrificed on the cross. The whole sacrificial system of the Old Testament points to the cross of Jesus Christ. During the church age right now, we have communion where we have the bread and the cup and we do uh, the, the Lord's table. And Jesus said, do this, when you eat and drink of this, you know, you do show the Lord's death until he comes again. So when he comes again, that means that's the end of communion, it seems. Well, bread, I like communion. Yeah, but what's gonna be interesting is they're, they're gonna reinstitute the sacrificial system in the millennial kingdom. And it's gonna be here at the temple to look backward into history or past history of when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave. Um, so all that to say, um, you know, there's gonna be the Lord, uh, you know, ministering in that temple. Now, with all that said, um, this, this idea here is um, this, this gallery or this, this quarters for the Zadok priests. It's going to be where they, you know, do the work of the ministry there on the in the inner court. They'll go into this stair step building and get kind of freshened up, changed, and all that stuff. And that's the quarters where they're going to do that. Um, now, uh, all that to say, um, the sanctuary, um, um, by the way, uh, was was also um, there. There's hints of of the you know. King Solomon temple, there's hints of the tabernacle era, but this, this one, this temple is gonna have extra buildings uh, unlike the temple of Solomon or, or the temple of Zerubbabel, remember we talked about that, or King Herod the Great uh, who had a rebuilding uh, of the temple. This one's gonna be different. One of the things we're gonna see is how much bigger this one tends to be than those other ones, what have you. So the first thing we see is the chamber of the inner court Uh, where these priests are serving and and they they have this sort of stair-step building. Now, verse 13. Then said he unto me, uh, the north chambers and the south chambers, which are before the separate place, they be holy chambers where the priests that approach unto the Lord shall eat the most holy things. There shall they lay the most holy things and the meat offering and the sin offering and the trespass offering for the place is holy. When the priest enter therein, then shall they not go out of the holy place into the utter court. Um, But there they shall lay their garments wherein they minister for they are holy and shall put on other garments and shall uh, put on uh, other garments that shall approach those things which are for the people. Now, in just a minute, we're gonna talk about what the priests are supposed to do and the kind of clothing that they're gonna wear and what have you. But, um, but all, that, uh, all that said, um, uh, the clothing that they wear is different from that which they were wearing in their normal everyday life. Uh, that's, that's something to note here as we're gonna come up to that uh, in, in the future. So you've got the, the, the you know, chambers of the inner court here, which is really important, really good. But you also then move to the second feature here in verse 15, the outer walls of the temple. And this, this, this is where it gets a little um, little uh, question mark. What are the measurements uh, here? Because I already showed you the picture of the guy with the reed. Uh, there's the hand breadth and the cubit, but the reed uh, is quite a bit taller, like twice as tall as a man in the long reed measurement. So the, the big question is how, how big is this outer court? Well, let's read in verse 15. It says, now when he had made an end of measuring the inner house, that's measurement man, uh, he brought me forth toward the gate whose prospect is toward the east and measured it round about. And he measured the east side with the measuring reed, 500 reeds with the measuring reed uh, round about. He measured the north side 500 reeds with the measuring reed round about. And he measured the south side 500 reeds with the measuring reed. And he turned uh, about the west side and measured 500 reeds with the measuring reed. He measured it by the four sides. It had a wall round about 500 reeds long, 500 broad to make a a separation between the sanctuary and the profane place. Now, this, uh, this, you know, outer court, the outer walls of the temple. By the way, when you go to Jerusalem today, you can see the outer walls of the Temple Mount. But they're nothing close to the size that this uh, description gives to us. This is an interesting thing. Um, now, minimally, if you take the most conservative measurement of what a reed is, um, you know, the, like the minimal size would be about… 875 feet by 875 feet square, uh, <clears throat> which would be a lot of a lot of space. <clears throat> but that's the most conservative. If you take the read, as it turns out, of uh, the longer version, it makes it about a square mile. Now, some of you might say, "Well, Brett, I've been to Jerusalem, and I don't know that there's enough room on the Temple Mount for a square mile outer courtyard." Well, maybe, maybe not. Um, Question, what's gonna happen to that whole region of the Temple Mount and the Mount of Olives when Jesus puts his foot down on the mountain? What's gonna happen, anybody? Massive earthquake. There's gonna be a huge splitting open of the Temple Mount. Um, Does anybody remember what else happens there? Water will flow from the Temple Mount both east and west, to the Dead Sea and to the Mediterranean Sea. And it's going to bring the Dead Sea back to life during the Millennial Kingdom. Um, this this little graphic of our temple that's been drawn up, um, there's a little tiny stream flowing through there. You see a little little stream? Uh, that's, I, I think it's going to be more flowing than that. You know, coming from Oregon, that, that's like a mud puddle. We, we, but I do have to say, you know, one of the things when, it, when we go to Israel, uh, one of the things people from Oregon are kind of shocked at is what what they call mountains and what they also call rivers. Um, uh, you know, like the Tualatin River flows more beautifully uh, than the Jordan River. I mean, like, like seriously, it's, it's a very small, there's a, one place in the upper uh, Galilee region where we go across the bridge over the Jordan River. And I, like, don't blink, you'll miss the Jordan River because it's about, you know, 15 feet wide and it's just kind of going through this little section there. Now, in in Bible times, the Jordan River was probably bigger than it is now, um, but even still it 's nothing like the Columbia or the uh, even the Willamette River like that 's the, the, the little water. But what kind of river is going to flow from the Temple Mount out um, we don 't know, but I believe the topography of the Temple Mount is going to change drastically. Now, did you see in conjunction with the changing of the Temple Mount, did you see um, how there 's going to be a separation? Uh, made between the sanctuary and the profane place. Hmm, this is an interesting thing. What is the profane place and what's going on? Well, do you remember the temple before this temple has still yet to be built? There's gonna be another temple before this one. And we we were calling that the tribulation temple. And that tribulation temple, do you remember what's gonna happen there during the tribulation period? It's gonna be profaned. It's gonna be an abomination of desolation as Jesus called it, as Daniel the prophet called it. And um, one of the things that I think is gonna happen is this newly rebuilt temple uh, in Jerusalem that's gonna be built during the tribulation. From the very beginning of the tribulation, they'll start construction according to the Bible because at exactly three and a half years into it, the, uh, this coming world leader, Antichrist, is gonna you know, uh, commit that uh, event where he's gonna go into the temple and, uh, and commit the abomination of desolation, set himself up to be sort of worshiped as God. And he's a, a total poser. He's got like a poser trinity. You know, you got the the beast, the false prophet, um, you know, the dragon. These are the, the three unholy trinities, if you would, or three part that he's sort of duping the world during the tribulation period. But during that time, that temple will be defiled by that event. So when Christ comes, I believe that's gonna be part of this destruction when he puts his foot down, the temple mount splits wide open. That temple from the tribulation period will also be demolished, which will leave room for a new need of a temple for the millennial kingdom. And that's the one the Lord will build here or that Ezekiel's plans dictate. Well, Brett, how is he going to build it? Uh, you know, who knows? Do you ever wonder that? Like, how is this going to be built? Will the Lord just go, built? Like, snap your fingers. It's over. That'd be great. Uh, um, but, but maybe he'll use the, some of these um, Zadokian priests to help build this, this temple. I don't know how that's going to shake out But notice it says here that, um, you know, he's gonna measure this out and it's gonna be um, measured out with these reeds. And so as it turns out, at the biggest measurement, it could be one square mile in size. That that could be the largest if if you're taking the more, you know, um, some of the more popular views, believe that it's gonna be a whole square mile on the Temple Mount, which could, could happen, especially if you change the topography of Jerusalem a little bit. Now, why would it be a bigger perhaps, uh, you know, outer gate, you know, or temple mount? Um, it would make sense. Right now, the temple mount's pretty small. And when the Muslims who have the temple mount as we speak, when they have their special, you know, holy days around Ramadan and stuff like that, the temple mount is just packed full of, of Muslims. Uh, do you remember a few years ago, they were worried that all the Muslims going up there were gonna make the, the temple mount collapse? Because there's some open, Uh, caverns underneath the Temple Mount, and they were worried that it was gonna collapse. And so they had to do some reinforcing under the Temple Mount so that it didn't collapse on those days where thousands of Muslims came to worship there at the Dome of the Rock uh, Shrine and also the Al-Aqsa Mosque there. But all that to say, the Muslims will be long gone when this temple is built. Uh, uh, Only the Lord will be there, and uh, he'll be worshiped on this Temple Mount. So that's why when you read about this Ezekiel temple and different authors and scholars, most agree it's gonna be massive. Uh, This whole Temple Mount area is gonna be much larger than it is today. By the way, this description of this uh, the river that's gonna come comes from Zechariah, the prophet. Um, It says there in Zechariah 14, verses nine through 11, it says, and the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day shall there be one Lord, and his name on all the land shall be turned as a plain from Giba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. And it shall be lifted up and inhabited in her place from Benjamin's gate under the place of the first gate under the corner gate. And from the tower of uh, Hananiel to the king's winepress and men shall dwell in it and there shall be no more uh, utter destruction but Jerusalem shall safely be inhabited. That's a time coming, this millennial kingdom that's being talked about here. Um, so you know, here in chapter forty-three, we basically move on to the next description of, uh, of of this temple period. But now we move from the building a little bit more to the actual glory of God coming into the temple. Now, if you recall, in early in the book of Ezekiel, the first couple chapters, we saw the glory of the Lord leave the temple. Um, and really never to return in the same way that it was in the times of like Solomon uh, and what have you. Um, but the glory of God, and by the way, um, let's talk about the glory. Remember the word glory, it's an important word when you're studying the, the Old Testament, the Hebrew word is kabod, which is that weighty, tangible, touchable presence of God. That's what we're gonna read about here in chapter 43. It says in verse one, afterward he brought me to the gate, even the gate that looks toward the east. And behold, the glory of, God of Israel, the God of Israel came from the way of the east and his voice was like the noise of many waters and the earth shined with his glory. And it was according to the appearance of the vision which I saw, even according to the vision that I saw when I came to destroy the city. And the visions were like the vision that I saw by the river Kibar and I fell upon my face. And the glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate whose prospect is toward the east. So the spirit took me up and brought me into the inner court and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house. And I heard him speaking unto me out of the house and the man stood by me. By the way, you'll hear um, some Bible, you know, Christians who have a very different view of end times. Uh, You know, none of this is literal, this is all figurative, which would make it kind of meaningless. Like, what's the reason for all these measurements? I, I think that there's a reason why we're literally talking measurements. If it's all figurative, why would we get out a ruler? You know, this glorious temple where God comes and fills with his presence. Um, You know, if he was talking about the temple of our bodies, like for example, why would he talk about the measurements of the gates and the measurements of the the chambers for the Zadokian priests? Like why why would that even be there if it was just talking about our temple? See, there's some that make those arguments that say, yeah, no, this is literally gonna happen anyway, so forget it and they really blow off this section of the Bible. Whenever you're blowing off any section of the Bible, you might wanna change your doctrine just a little bit. Because uh, every word of the scriptures is inspired by God and it's good for instruction, correction, and reproof. Um, these are the things that the whole Bible, even Ezekiel chapter 43, it's good for instruction, good for you know, correction. So if we're not seeing those things, we might be missing the whole meaning. But if you take a literal application of this, it makes perfect sense. You know, um, some, some people say, the preterists, some of them will say, hey, you know, this has already happened in history. The only problem with that is there's no other time in history where the glory of God came back into the temple in Jerusalem. Um, the glory of God left, remember in 586 BC, Ezekiel the prophet, when he was at the River Kebar in chapter one of Ezekiel, he saw the glory of the Lord depart from uh, Jerusalem. Now, when did it come back? Well, you could argue the glory returned when Jesus rode the little colt of a donkey. You could say the glory of the Lord came back to Jerusalem there, but not in the same way, wouldn't you agree? Jesus in his humble servant form came to die on the cross. And again, the glory, if you would, was driven out of Jerusalem. If you you look at Jesus's coming as the glory of God coming Jerusalem, we know it was in the sense that Jesus is God who came in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. But this description is very specific. And he says, it was just like when he saw the glory of the Lord depart, so too, that's the way the glory of the Lord's gonna come back. He even says, just like the vision I had at the river Kibar, there in verse three, talking about you know, the previous prophecy of when the glory of the Lord left Jerusalem. So one of the things we need to understand is when this millennial kingdom temple is built, there's gonna be a dramatic moment where the glory of God returns. Um, by the way, um, one of the things you should know about is after the temple, you know, was rebuilt by Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah and those guys. There's no description in the Bible of the glory of the Lord coming into the temple. When Solomon built his temple, the glory came in to the temple. Um, uh, you know, when the tabernacle was even built, they saw the glory of God descend upon the tabernacle. You did not see that in Nehemiah or Ezra Zerubbabels. Uh, I'm told by the way I pronounce Zerubbabel wrong. Uh, It's like Zerubbabel, something like that. But I like Bubba, you know, we call him short. Um, Anyway, (laughs) Zerubbabel's temple, he he was the one who came and sort of rebuilt that temple. Um, But there's no record of the glory going into that temple. That's kind of interesting. Um, So this is what we're seeing here, is the glory of the Lord, verse four, comes back into the house by the way of the gate, whose prospect is toward the east the eastern gate, and it's gonna, which means it's going to go in the same way it left, back through that same gate. That's why the east gate is so important and what have you. Now, there's a few other things uh, that's, that's kind of cool here. One thing that we learn a little bit about again and we're reminded is that the Lord has the voice. Look at verse two. It says, his voice was like the noise of many waters. That's that's a description we see in Isaiah, but also the book of Revelation talks about the voice of the Lord. Three times it says, his voice is like the noise of many waters. Now, what does that mean? Uh, I'm not sure. Some say it's, it's like many waters, like Niagara Falls. If you've ever stood next to a huge waterfall, it's just like this powerful sense of, of noise, but power, uh, the big waterfall, you know, crushing, that that could be the voice of the Lord. Others say, well, many waters means it could be Niagara Falls, or it could be a little trickling spring in the woods that you can barely hear the trickle sound. Because remember, the Lord says in Isaiah 30, I will be a still, small voice, and I'll whisper whether to turn right or to the left. The Lord tells us that. I think the Lord speaks to us in various ways, in various volumes. Some of you you think, you, you, Brett? Are you hearing voices again? Does the Lord talk to you? Well, I've never heard the Lord speak audibly to me. Could the Lord do that? Of course. If He wanted to, He's done that in biblical times. Remember uh, Charlton Heston, Ten Commandments. Brr, brr, brr. Uh, that's the way the, that's the way they they make uh, God speak in that movie. I'm not sure that's exactly how He sounded, um, <laughs> but. Uh, but we do know that he has the voice of many waters. So, 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 some of you have heard the Lord's still small voice. That could be you're getting ready to do something, and the Lord puts a check in your spirit and says, I shouldn't be doing this. That's the Holy Spirit, the Lord's voice, just tapping you on the shoulder saying, eh, 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 Don't do it. Don't do it. Have you ever had that? How many of you guys have had that? Yeah, almost all of us. That's great. That's the, that's the still, small voice. But some of you have had the huge, loud voice of the Lord. Stop! <laughs> like, like, some of you have had that too, and thank the Lord for that, because that's what it takes for some of us uh, to, to not go the direction that we're going. But it's the voice of many waters. Uh, it's an interesting description of the voice of the Lord. I love that. Whether it's Niagara, or just a still, small, little drip that the Lord wants to remind you. I love that, that the Lord is the voice of many waters. But that's a common theme throughout the Bible. Well, all that to say, um, this is the glory of the Lord coming back into the temple. It's gonna be a glorious day when the glory of the Lord returns. Do you remember when the, the, the glory was taken by the Philistines in the Ark of the Covenant? The woman that called you know, her son Ichabod, which means no glory. Um, and uh, it was there was a real sense in Jerusalem that God's presence had departed. One of the things I love about being a Christian is I believe that, Your body is a temple to the Holy Spirit. And there is that glory, that kabod, I think, that can rest upon your life and your house and your church. Um, It's not the same as when the glory of the Lord shone in the temple of Jerusalem, but it it seems to be a little different, but it's, it's the same in the sense that you sense God's presence. I've been in churches where I did not sense the Lord's presence. You're like, man, is the Lord even here? I'm not even sure they'd let Jesus into this place if he walked in and knocked on the door. Um, there's also people that have, you know, that, that have Jesus in their homes. Now, this might sound a little weird, and, uh, but I, I just have to say it. I grew up in a home where Jesus was all over my home. Man, when I got home from school, my mom had worship music playing, We prayed before school every day. We did family devotions. We sang songs. My family, we sang songs and played music and did worship services in our living room. Um, we We just, it was Jesus everywhere. And I didn't realize until I was older what I actually had there, that my house was glowing. Like where I lived, if you would've walked into my house as a kid, you would've said, man, there's something special about this. What's going on here? I didn't realize it until I went uh, to some of my buddies' house. There's a couple of people I remember. One, Sean Thompson, went over to his house and uh, I'd, I'd never seen anything like it. I was so excited because we were, I got to go over to his house to play with, with him after school. We were in like fourth grade. I was so excited. My maiden voyage away from my house. Um, my parents were a little tight-fisted when it came to... You know, we lived out in the country, so it's not like you had neighbors you could go over to and stuff as much. But, but I remember going to Sean's house and it was within walking distance of the school. So we were gonna single-handedly walk from school to his house. And I remember thinking, oh, that's gonna be great. And, and then when we got to his house, he did something that I'd never seen before. He reached into his shirt and he pulled out a, a key, which i had never seen that before. What, what, why do you have a key? Oh, my the house is locked. Well, why is your house locked? We never locked our house. Um, but also... I realized that his mom wasn't home. She was at work, her dad was at work. The house was lights off, heater was off. You walked in and he saw a chilly frost when you walked into this. I, I just didn't, I, it was so different than what I was used to. And and see, I had a house so full of Jesus that when I walked into a house that didn't really have that, it was just kind of a different, Brett, you're, you're just saying, you know, the working mom or the, no, I'm just saying, when you walk into the house, it just felt kind of cold and, and unwelcoming, and it didn't have the warmth uh, of the Holy Spirit that my house had. I've walked into churches that are just about that chilly. You can go into them in downtown Portland if you want. There's lots of churches down there that somehow they left the real faith and now they're just more of a feel-good political sort of thing. Uh, When we were trying to, years ago, we were trying to do a service downtown and we finally got the museum, the art museum down there. Uh, some of you guys maybe remember that. That was kind of, we had, you know, 150 people going to downtown service. Um, but uh, we asked like eight churches if we could rent their empty buildings. You know, they sit around empty, these beautiful churches in downtown. And uh, they're just empty. Uh, and we thought, man, well, we got good money. We can pay you guys rent for these. Like, well, what are you guys going to do? And w- literally, this one, <laughs> this is a true story. I walked in, Vera Katz, who was the mayor at the time, and the, and the pastor, she was sitting next to Vera. And, uh, and I just, we were talking to him. And we said, well, we'd, li- we'd love to rent this building if, if it's available on afternoons, on Sunday. And I said, well, what are you doing? And I said, well, I teach verse by verse through the Bible. Oh, No. That's what they said. Like, they were like, oh, no, 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 no. And uh, I wasn't shocked uh, if you remember the politics of that. But anyway, um, eight churches shut us down and said, nope. So we had to go to the art museum. Uh, uh, all the naked statues, we put Eighthly Creek football shirts on them. Uh, were... <laughs> it was pretty funny. But long story short, uh, I, I think you can still sense the presence of the Lord and if you have your sensor on. You go, know, man, this, this, this house, this family, you can just smell the fragrance of Jesus here. Um, others, you don't. And the reason I, I, I put that out to us is because the glory of the Lord, that's what the world is like right now. The world is no glory. Ichabod, his presence is lifted up and gone, except for in his church. The church of Jesus Christ. But as the church seems to be waning in some ways, which by the way, the apostasia of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, I think we're seeing some of that happening where the church is losing its, its strength. We've become so you know, progressive in our spiritual you know, theology that we're losing our light. Our light is dimming. But that shouldn't be a shock because we're right now, you know, the church of Jesus Christ is holding back. The King James says, letting. But once the church is taken up out of the way, the rapture of the church, what's the rest of the world gonna do? Man, there's gonna be zero glory, no light of the Lord when the church is gone. Um, and that's when the darkest time in history is gonna happen, uh, the tribulation period. But then Christ is gonna return and his glory is gonna fill the temple. That's what this is gonna be about. It's gonna be a glorious time. Read Revelation 19, that's when Christ returns. It's gonna be quite the event, uh, but that's what this is describing here for us. Well, verse seven, "'And he said unto me, uh, Son of man, the, uh, "'the place of my throne, "'and the place of the soles of, the, of my feet, "'where I will dwell in the midst "'of the children of Israel forever.' And my holy name shall the house of Israel no more defile, neither they nor their kings by their whoredom, nor by the carcasses of their kings in their high places. In their setting of their threshold by my thresholds and their post by my posts, and the wall between me and them, they have even defiled my holy name by their abominations that they have committed. Wherefore, I have com- consumed them in mine anger. Now let them put away their whoredom and the carcasses of their kings far from me, and I will dwell in the midst of them forever. This is when it's a done deal. Throughout all of history, you know, as soon as they built Solomon's temple, it wouldn't be long, Solomon himself would be defiling that very temple. And Solomon would worship Moloch, the God where they'd sacrificed babies on the arms of Moloch. Solomon did that. It didn't take long for the the Jewish kings to do horrible Hortums, as it's called here, uh, against God in the temple. This is finally in, in the world's history where it's not gonna happen ever again. It's when the Lord says, when I put my feet down here on this temple, no more of that stuff. Those guys are toast, history, curtains, literally uh, gone. And he says, no more. And I'm gonna dwell here forever. Uh, nobody's gonna replace me ever, you know, with any idol or what have you. Um, uh, by the way, which sort of implies that maybe during the millennial kingdom, and I I believe this is the case, that you sort of lose your free will. Have you guys thought about this? In the millennial kingdom, one of the things I've wondered about, Lord, why didn't you give us a free will switch on our side of our head? I'd take a nice little switch right here. Free will, no free will, free will, no free will. Why do you want that, Brett? Well, have you ever noticed how humanity, we use our free will horribly? You know, you're free to do whatever you want. You can do horrible things. You can do nice things. You can do loving things. You can do horribly perverted things. You can do like, but, but human free will, we've, we've proven ourselves to not know how to use that very well. But God nonetheless gives us that free will to choose whether we're gonna follow him or reject him, obey his word or disobey and man, sometimes you just kind of think of what you do and your attitudes, your actions, your sins. You think, oh Lord, just turn off that free will. I wanna, I, I, my, my heart's saying I wanna follow you, but my mind is saying I don't. And I, I have this battle of the flesh and the spirit. It's that free will. But in the millennial kingdom, one of the things Daniel 9 tells us, and even here, nobody's gonna challenge God during this time period. It's like God puts his foot down on the earth and says, okay, the end, as far as, people messing around and doing sinful stuff. Now, do you remember at the very end of the millennial kingdom, there's gonna be another chance for people to have a free will? There's a whole reason. Do you remember why Satan is loosed for a short time at the end of the millennial kingdom? Does anybody remember why? To deceive many. Why would Satan be released at the end of the millennial kingdom to deceive many? It's because those people of the millennium that live in literal bodies, not us, Once we are raptured up to be with the Lord, we're given our new bodies, we'll be there forever with the Lord. We're locked in. Wherever Jesus is, that's where we get to be. We're locked in. But there will be people who will survive during that tribulation period, who won't have been raptured and they will not have died during the tribulation period. So they'll make it through the millennial kingdom. That's who, by the way, will be serving uh, along with other humans that'll be alive in sort of a human form. It will be different, however, It's a little bit different, kind of like the human existence in the antediluvian world versus our present day. Antediluvian, of course, the the pre-flood, before Noah's day. Do you remember how people lived to be almost a thousand years old during the pre-flood years? I believe the millennial kingdom will be back more into that mode. Um, Because, do you remember what Isaiah the prophet said? He said, you know, if a a person dies at like a hundred years old, that's like losing a little preschooler. Everybody really sad. And death will be actually kind of rare in the millennial kingdom. It'll be a rare thing. Um, and people will live to be old. Um, that's what the Bible says about the millennial kingdom. So it, it's sort of a new era. But the people that live through that tribulation period, they will live on this earth and they'll live for a long time, but they will have a chance to choose only at the end of the millennial kingdom. But during the rest of the millennial kingdom, they don't have that choice. There's sort of an enforced Locked in righteousness that God will just make it happen. Um, there, there's, there's even a hint of, um, uh, you remember, we're, we'll talk about this later, but if people you know, don't do what they're supposed to do in the, celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles, for example, during the Millennial Kingdom, Lord will just not allow their crops to grow, their farms will fail. Like it's stuff you just got to do uh, during the Millennial Kingdom. But here, the Lord's saying, nobody else will try to replace me or this temple with other false gods. It's an enforced righteousness. Daniel 9 says, an uh, an end of transgression and an end of sin. That's what's gonna happen during the millennial kingdom. So it sounds kind of good to me. It sounds a little bit like that time where we get the switch and everybody gets that switch of free will turned off and the Lord's gonna say, "Just, just do the right thing. Everybody say, okay. And it's gonna be good. It's gonna be a good time, a glorious time. Well, all that to say, um, that's what's being talked about there in verse, uh, verses eight and nine. Verse 10, thou son of man, show the house to the house of Israel that they may be ashamed of their iniquities and let them measure a the pattern. Now, now, as I read these next few verses, this is where I get a, a sense that there's something we're missing. Um, here Ezekiel says, now all these dimensions I just gave to the Jewish people, may, may this be all these, show all these dimensions, show these blueprints that I've given us here, you know, in Ezekiel saying, verse, chapter 40 through 43, show this to the Jews that it might be what? Well, it says it's gonna be something that brings sort of a shame to, to their sinfulness. Um, so as we keep reading, since I wonder if there's something deeper specifically for the Jews that's kind of hidden here in Ezekiel. Let them measure out the pattern, verse 11, and if they be ashamed of all that they have done, show them the form of the house and the fashion thereof and the goings out thereof and the comings in thereof and all the forms thereof and all the ordinances thereof and all the forms thereof and all the laws thereof and write in their sight that they may keep the whole form thereof and all the ordinances thereof and do them This is the law of the house. Upon the top of the mountain, the whole limit thereof round about shall be most holy. Behold, this is the law of the house. Now, I've asked Jews in Jerusalem, what do you think this means? Because that's an interesting question. You know, and the Jews, they they take the Old Testament Hebrew Bible uh, very seriously. And they're saying, oh, Ezekiel's temple is just the temple during that time. Like they, they have this kind of funny answer about the, this. But, but here's what's really interesting. I've, I've actually learned this. Um, you don't see it as much today because they don't generally let Jews on the Temple Mount. Um, by the way, last week, a bunch of Jews went to the Temple Mount or a week and a half ago. Did you guys see this on the news? Um, with, and they had a little bit of security with them. Security meaning an army. Uh, and the Jews went onto the Temple Mount. And that always causes trouble in Jerusalem. And and there, there's stirring of trouble right now in Jerusalem because the Jews went on the Temple Mount. But when I used to go to Israel years and years ago, like back in the 90s, um, you'd see a few more Jews here and there on the Temple Mount. Um, and these Hasidic Jews, uh, you know, with the curls and the black hats and their black coats and stuff, Some of these guys would go up on the Temple Mount, and they—you'd see them. It looks like they were walking on the huge outer court area, but they were walking. It looked like on a balance beam, sort of like uh, you uh, know—I was going to say Simone, but she's not there anymore. Um, uh, You know, like the balance beam in the Olympics. You know, and these 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 guys would literally be like walking out like this. And you say, what in the world are those guys doing? It's not even a, a balance beam; it's the flat ground. Well, what they're doing, what they were doing is measuring out what they believed to be the Holy of Holies. And the reason they wanted, they wanted to be close to the Holy of Holies, but they didn't wanna step in the Holy of Holies because they weren't you know, Aaron or a son of Aaron. But they were doing that for a couple reasons. One, to be close to where the temple really was back in ancient times. Two, they were doing it as an act of repentance. Why would it be an act of repentance? Right here in Ezekiel, it says, Ezekiel, measure out this temple. And, and have the Jews look at these measurements. And if they be ashamed of all that they have done, then they need to show forth this house in the form of it, you know, and, and, and the laws that go with it. And that's what these guys are doing is measuring out as they were walking the perimeter of what they believe to be the temple of the time of Solomon. So the Jews kind of believe this is stuff for today. Um, but even still, it's a funny thing, because then you say, yeah, but, when the Messiah comes. See, because the Jews are still looking for the Messiah. They don't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. So they're looking for the Messiah. And you say, okay, but, but here Ezekiel's talking about the glory of the Lord coming back to Israel. And, and uh, there, there's, there's definitely some Messiah overtones. Um, what's that all about? And it's funny because, you know, some of the Jews that I've talked to, they have kind of mixed feelings about what this is all about actually. But you can kind of spell it out and say, you know, the Messiah is coming. And the temple will be rebuilt. And, and, and you can kind of start explaining. And it's really interesting because they look at a guy like me, what, what, what do you Gentiles care about our temple in, the, in Jerusalem and all this stuff? And, and, and we get to say, you know, Jesus is the Messiah and he's the one who's gonna come again. And you can explain that this gate, and that's why it's shut. And then, you know, explain how the temple's gonna be rebuilt uh, during the millennial kingdom. And, and they're very intrigued, but then you ask, do you wanna accept Jesus? They say, what are you talking about? Um, you know, the Jews have no evangelism. There's no evan- they're, they're not trying to lead other people to Judaism. Uh, this whole thing of us Christians going around saying, Jesus is the way, they're like, well, whatever. Uh, but the Bible tells us why that is. Romans 9, 10, 11 says, blindness in part has happened to the Jews, but that blindness will be lifted up and all of this will start to make sense to them. But it's interesting to hear the way the Jews interpret the book of Ezekiel uh, without the Jesus part. Um, but there's some big gaps if you can only imagine in their understanding because they don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. Well, that's why you see sometimes Jews pacing off those measurements because they're really trying to be ashamed and repentant for the sins of the Jews of the times past. Well, verse 13 says there, um, it says, and these are the measures of the altar after the cubits The cubit is is a cubit and a handbreadth. Even the bottom shall be a cubit and the breadth a cubit, and the border thereof by the edge thereof roundabout shall be a span. And this shall uh, be the higher place of the altar. And from the bottom upon the ground even to the lower settle uh, settle shall be two cubits, and the breadth one cubit. And from the lesser settle even to the greater settle shall be four cubits and the breadth one cubit. So the altar shall be four cubits and from the altar and upward shall be four horns. And the altar shall be 12 cubits long, 12 broad, uh, square in the four squares thereof. And the settle shall be 14 cubits long and 14 broad uh, in the four squares thereof. And the border uh, about it shall be half a cubit and the bottom thereof shall be a cubit about, and his stairs shall look toward the east." So this this altar here, interesting, the, the word al- altar um, uh, is Ariel in the Hebrew, which um, it ha- has some interesting double meanings. It's an altar, but it's also the Lion of God. <laughs> That's kind of an interesting double meaning word, the Lion of God and Ariel Uh, being the the altar. But this altar is where they will commemorate um, the the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, pointing forward to Jesus on the cross, then in the millennial kingdom, pointing backward to Jesus on the cross. That's why this altar will be here. Um, There's a few noticeable differences. Does anybody remember? Did they allow um, stairs around or near the altar uh, in the old uh, Solomon or other temples? No, does anybody remember why? There's a reason. Two reasons. One, they didn't want people going up the stairs pridefully. Uh, there, were, there was meant to be a humility and something about going upstairs um, was sort of haughty. But also, this is funny, uh, you, know, you can read about this by the way in um, you know, Exodus 20, 26. No stairs on the altar because they didn't want to look at where the priests were walking up these stairs and guys could see under their skirt. Uh, you know, just a modesty thing. <laughs> um, and, uh, and that was part of the reason. They, they didn't have stairs. The millennial kingdom will have stairs on the altar. That's a big difference. Um, and you can kind of guess why. It's gonna be a very different temple. It's gonna be a diff- different purpose. Um, and, uh, and Jesus is gonna be there uh, ruling and reigning. So it does change uh, the, the purpose of this. But um, the idea of stairs, that's one of the big differences in the, the altar of this versus the uh, Old Testament version, uh, temple. Well, verse 18, and he said unto me, son of man, thus saith the Lord God, these are the ordinances of the altar in the day when they shall make it to offer burnt offerings thereon and to sprinkle blood thereon and thou shalt give to the priests the Levites, um, that he of the seed of Zadok, which approach unto me, to minister unto me, saith the Lord God, a young bullock for a sin offering. And thou shalt take of the blood thereof and put it on the four horns of it and on the four corners of the settle and upon the border round about. Thus shalt thou cleanse and purge it. Thou shalt take the bullock also of the sin offering and he shall burn it in the appointed place of the house without the sanctuary. And on the Second day, thou shalt offer a kid of the goats without blemish for a sin offering and they shall cleanse it, uh, the altar as they did cleanse it with the bullock. Then thou shalt, uh, when thou hast made an end of cleansing it, thou, um, thou shalt offer a young bullock without blemish and a ram out of the flock without blemish and thou shalt offer them before the Lord and the priests, they shall, uh, shall cast salt upon them And they shall offer them up for a burnt offering unto the Lord. Seven days shalt thou prepare every day a goat for a sin offering. They shall also prepare a young bullock and a ram out of the flock without blemish. Seven days shall they purge the altar and purify it. And they shall consecrate themselves. And when these days are expired, it shall be that upon the eighth day and so forward, the priests shall make your burnt offerings upon the altar and your peace offerings. And I will accept you, saith the Lord God. So that's the big question. Why the, the peace offerings, the sin offerings, and what have you during the millennial kingdom? Um, this, this is kind of a question that some people have. Why is this? And, and either it's, like I said, to point backward, or this idea of sin. Like we have to understand, what's this millennial kingdom going to look like? And will there be people who still sin during that, that millennial kingdom? We won't because we're given our new bodies, we're forever with the Lord. We're not gonna be using these altars. I hope you understand that. Only the people that lived during the tribulation period will be uh, there with the the sons of Zadok, which are Levites. We'll talk about them in a second in chapter 44. Um, Well, they're they're the ones who will be using this altar uh, before the Lord. Um, Remember the horns there, you know, the horns of the altar, uh, there's some, Old Testament stuff there that's kind of cool. The horns, that'd be where they'd tie these offerings, these animals, and the people would identify their sins upon that animal by placing their hand on the head of that animal, but it'd be tied to the horns. But the horns of the altar, if you see altars, they have these four horns coming out of the corners. They were also a place of refuge. Remember when you used to play tag when you were a kid and you had free bass and they couldn't get you if you were touching free base. Well, that's what these horns were. If somebody was sinned and had a sin, even where they were you know, guilty of something like manslaughter and eye for an eye kind of thing, and you, you could kill that person as a retaliation, they could run and grab hold of the horns of the altar and that would be a free base for them. Uh, that's where they'd be saved. And all that imagery points to Jesus, the blood of the lamb. Even as they put the blood on these horns to, to cleanse them, it'd be that same blood that would save us from our sinful, the things that we deserve death when you hold on to the horns of the altar or better, if you cling to the cross of Christ, um, you're saved. Even if you've done death-worthy sins, your sins are still forgiven. That's all these images that the altar brings, uh, again, pointing forward uh, to to the cross in the Old Testament, backward in the millennial kingdom. Well, quickly, chapter 44, it says this in in verse uh, one, Then he brought me back the way of the gate, outward sanctuary, which looketh toward the east, and it was shut. Then said the Lord unto me, this gate shall be shut, it shall not be opened, and no man shall enter it by it, because the Lord, the word Lord there is Jehovah, capital L-O-R-D. The God of Israel hath entered in by it, therefore it shall be shut. Now, if you just stop right there, you kind of, okay, so that's why it's shut, because the Lord was gonna go through that. And we did a whole Sunday on that. But one of the things that's kind of confusing about this is, is, is who's the prince that we're about to read about? Because it, it's clear that it says that the, the Lord, Jehovah, is gonna go through that gate. And we know that that's Jesus. Um, are you guys clear on that part? Yes. But then it goes into this thing about the, the prince. And this is where it gets a little more confusing. Verse three, it is for the prince, the prince, he shall sit in it to eat bread before the Lord, Jehovah, Um, he shall enter by the way of the porch of that gate and shall go out by the way of the same. The reason this is a a tricky thing is we're not really 100% sure who this prince is. Some say, well, it's Jesus. Could be. But there's a few problems with that that we're gonna see in the next few chapters. This prince does some stuff that um, you might note, and I'm just gonna give you kind of a heads up before we read about this prince over the next few chapters. First of all, this prince that's talked about in Ezekiel 44 and onward, there's, there's little to no priestly prerogatives that this prince has. Um, we know that the Messiah, the prince of Daniel chapter nine, he, Jesus is called the prince, the Messiah, the prince. Uh, we know that he does have priestly prerogatives. This, this one doesn't r- really reference that. Um, we're gonna see this prince, if it's the same prince we're talking about here in verse three, we're gonna see him offer a sin offering. Is there any reason why Jesus would offer a sin offering? No, but here's, a, here's an argument I've heard about this one. If it is Jesus offering us an offering, did Jesus need to be baptized? He did it because he wanted to fulfill all righteousness. But for us, baptism is sort of a recognizing your old sin nature, burying it in the river, coming up new. Jesus didn't need to do that, but he did to fulfill all righteousness. In some arguments I've heard, they say this: pri- the priest of Ezekiel's temple is Jesus and he's offering a sin offering in the same way that he was baptized uh, to fulfill all righteousness. That's the argument I've heard. But still, this priest also has sons we're going to see. Now that starts to make you think, wait, that's not Jesus, unless you believe the stupid Da Vinci Code. And, uh, you know, you married, Mary, married, became British and had some tea and all that stuff. Um, ridiculous, ridiculous uh, work, the Da Vinci Code. I hope none of you were sucked into such stupidity. Um, if you ever want to doubt the Da Vinci Code, just read the book and then look at the bibliography at the end, the names of the titles that is referenced, Makes you realize, cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, man! Like it's the it's the craziest uh, reference. Uh, anyway, I I, I digress. Um, Jesus did not have sons. That's important to know. Uh, nor will he, according to the Bible. Um, so that begs the question: Who is this priest? And I've heard theories. Everybody from some some descendant of David, but Jesus is the son of David. So um, the truth is, there's a bit of confusion about who this prince is. And I'm not going to you know fight hard one way or the other, but I do leave that out to you. If you wanna dig, there's some interesting reads on various you know, good theories about who this prince really is and what it will his role really be. Some say it's Jesus, others say, nope, it's a descendant of David uh, that's gonna come as a prince, but Jesus is gonna be the king of kings, but maybe it's David himself. Some say it's gonna be David himself, you know, resurrected from the dead uh, as the prince. Um, so keep that in mind as we keep reading. Verse four. Then brought he, me, uh, the way of the north gate before the house. And I looked and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord and I fell upon my face. It's always the result of the glory of the Lord coming is people falling on their face. Um, uh, you never see somebody standing pridefully in front of the glory of, when, people, well, when I get to heaven, I'm gonna tell God. No, you're not gonna tell God anything. You're gonna wet your pants, then you're gonna stand, fall down on your floor, and you'll get the smell of the floor. That's about it. Um, that's according to the Bible. I'm just telling you, it's, it's not gonna be, oh, I'll tell God a thing or two. No. Uh, exactly what happened to Ezekiel is every time in the Bible when you see the glory of the Lord, everybody's falling on their faces. Um, Verse 5, And the Lord, Jehovah, said unto me, Son of man, mark well, and behold with thine eyes, and hear with thine ears all that I say unto thee concerning all the ordinances of the house of the Lord, and all the laws thereof, and mark well the entering in of the house, with every going forth of the sanctuary. And thou shalt say to the rebellious, even to the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God, O ye house of Israel, let it Suffice you of all your abominations, in that you have brought into my sanctuary strangers, uncircumcised in heart and uncircumcised in flesh, to be in my sanctuary, to pollute it, even my house, when you offer my bread, the fat of the blood, and they have broken my covenant because of all your abominations. And you have not kept the charge of mine holy things, but have set keepers of my charge in the sanctuary. For yourselves, Now, you can easily say, well, this is what Israel did do. They brought in Gentiles and pagans into their temple and defiled it. But here's the thing that's kind of interesting. Um, some argue that Ezekiel's talking about the tribulation temple specifically here when it says, um, you've brought into my sanctuary the uncircumcised in heart and uncircumcised in flesh to be in my sanctuary, to pollute it. Some believe that Ezekiel seeing the the, the, the forthcoming of the the abomination of desolation, when the Jews invite this coming world leader, they're gonna remember, make a peace treaty with them. Some believe from Daniel 9, that peace treaty is gonna include the giving of the land of the Temple Mount back, or at least part of it, back to the Jews for that, that temple period. And, and see, that's going to be an interesting problem because the Jews can't really have Jerusalem right now. Uh, they can't have the Temple Mount. It, it belongs technically uh, to the Muslims, but it's going to it's going to change, and we're going to see that change. So this could be the Antichrist coming there uh, in verse seven. Well. It says in verse nine, thus saith the Lord God, no stranger uncircumcised in heart, nor uncircumcised in flesh shall enter into my sanctuary of any stranger that is among the children of Israel and the Levites that are gone away far from me. When Israel went astray, which went astray away from me after their idols, then shall even, uh, shall even bear their iniquity. Um, yet they shall be ministers in my sanctuary, having charge at the gates of the house and ministering to the house, that they shall slay the burnt offering and the sacrifice for the people. They shall stand before them to minister unto them, because they ministered unto them before their idols and caused the house of Israel to fall into iniquity. Therefore have I lifted up mine hand against them, saith the Lord God, and they shall bear their iniquity. And they shall not come near unto me to do the office of the priest, Uh, unto me, nor to come near any of my holy things in the most holy place. But they shall bear their shame and their abominations, which they have committed. But I will make them keepers of the charge of the house for all the service thereof and for all that uh, shall be done therein. So basically the Jews that make it through uh, the tribulation period, they're gonna be serving the temple. We're not gonna be doing that, by the way. We have a different role in the millennial kingdom. We rule and reign over the earth with the Lord. The Jews are specifically uh, serving in the temple. But there's a specific group of Jews mentioned here in verse 15 what we, that we saw in chapter 43, the Zadokian priest. Um, it's verse 15. But the, priest of the, uh, um, but the priest, the Levites, the sons of Zadok that kept the charge of my sanctuary when the children of Israel went astray from me They shall come near unto me and minister unto me. They shall stand before me to offer unto me the fat and the blood, saith the Lord God. They shall enter into my sanctuary. They shall come near to my table and minister unto me, and they shall keep my charge. Who are the sons of Zadok? (laughs) You're like, man, that's a weird name, the Zadokian ministry. Well, first you got the Levites, who are just generally the ones to serve in the temple. And by the way, the Temple Institute in Jerusalem, they're collecting uh, information on all the Jews with the last name of Cohen. Um, and there's a reason why. Uh, you can't really trace generally what tribe you're from. If you're a Jew, it's really hard to know. Most Jews have no idea what tribe they belong to today. But if you have the last name of Cohen, you come from the tribe of Levi. And, and that's one of the known factors. So they're gathering all the Cohen's around the world saying, you, you know, you could be a priest in the temple. Because they know that they're Levites. But you got the Levites, they're gonna generally serve in the temple. But then you have the sons of Zadok who are gonna do something very different. They're gonna serve the Lord himself. And notice the language here in verses 15 and 16. You know, they'll, they'll come near me. They'll minister unto me. They'll stand before me. They'll offer unto me. Verse 16, they'll enter into my sanctuary, come near my table. It's all about Christ, the Messiah that they're gonna minister too. So the the sons of Zadok sort of get the next level and they're gonna do the higher form of ministry. By the way, I hope you understand the highest form of ministry always, always, always is to serve the Lord himself, to worship him, to serve him, to love him. That's the highest, remember Mary and Martha, you know, Mary was the one who was there at the feet of Jesus. Martha was the one who was serving the tables and busy serving, serving, serving. But Mary had chosen the better of the, of, the, of the various ministries there. You know, she was serving Jesus. And that's what the sons of Zadok get to do in the millennial kingdom. Verse 17, it shall come to pass that when they enter in at the gates of the inner court, they shall be clothed with linen garments And no wool shall come upon them while they minister in the gates, in the inner court, and within. They shall have linen bonnets upon their heads. I'm sure that's going to look lovely. (laughs) And they shall have linen breeches upon their loins and they shall not gird themselves with anything that causes sweat. Now, this is where we learn about these priests and what they're supposed to wear and how they're supposed to minister and what they're supposed to, to do. Um, and the word bonnet is an old King James word uh, that we, I mean, the, the British, they call, you know, they call the hood of your car a bonnet. So or if we're crying out loud, that's, uh, uh, this, is a, this is just some kind of a hat that these guys are gonna wear. Um, but, but notice they're not suppo- supposed to put on any wool or anything that causes sweat. So, um, you know, the sons of Zadok, these guys are kind of special. By the way, I didn't tell you why the sons of Zadok uh, were so set aside um, for such an important role. Um, there, there's a few things you should know, and you can maybe jot these down in your notes. The first reason the Zadokian ministry is set forth here higher than the Levites, Zadok was the faithful priest. To King David. Uh, If you remember the story, he stayed with David through the whole conflict, um, especially during the, uh, you know, the rebellion of Absalom. Second, Zadok was chosen uh, uh, to basically anoint King Solomon during his uh, coronation. Uh, Zadok was kind of famous for the crowning of Solomon. But also thirdly, and most maybe importantly, the sons of Zadok kept themselves from idols uh, unlike all the other priests and kings and stuff of ancient Israel, they, the sons of Zadok were known to keep themselves pure. And that's why these guys get to do such a high level of ministry in the millennial kingdom. It's amazing how the Lord has a long memory uh, and, and he's He's using these guys that were total studs in the in the Old Testament. So um, what are the, the, the things they're supposed to do in ministry? Well, the first thing that we list here in verses... Uh, you know, 17 and 18 is uh, a ministry of simplicity where there's no sweat. Uh, they just wear linen garments and not put on wool. I like that. I'm not a big wool wearing person, even in the dead of winter. I, like, I, like, I don't like being hot uh, and sweaty. Some of you guys notice the sanctuary is a little chilly um, oftentimes. It's number one to keep you awake. Uh, Number two, uh, for a lot of us guys, we run a little warm. And so it's nice to have coolness in the sanctuary. But no sweat ministry. By the way, I think there's a a lesson there. I remember my pastor teaching us this when I was younger. Saying, be careful not to do things that cause sweat. You know, ministry should be stuff that you do that kind of comes naturally. Um, And if it's causing sweat, maybe you're doing the wrong thing. Uh, You know, uh, I I think that I see that. Did you know that... um, that uh, 39% of pastors in this past two years of the pandemic and, and this you know, current culture we're in with you know all the struggles of society, um, that 39% of pastors are, are, have thought seriously about uh, hanging it up during this season. Um, and the reason is because they're freaked out because people are just mad. They're mad at them. If you, if you wear a mask and make people wear masks, people are mad. If you don't wear a mask, people are mad. If you'd get a a vaccination, people are mad at you because you're taking the mark of the beast. If you don't get a vaccination, they're mad at you because you're killing everyone. Um, Like people are just mad and pastors are wanting to bail uh, according to the statistics. Um, But I'm I'm always marveling when I even, you know, over the many years of ministry, um, when I see pastors that are kind of struggling and they oh, I don't know about this and these people and they're mad at everybody all the time and stuff. It's like, maybe you really weren't called to the ministry. Like if you're doing something that causes sweat, do something else. Um, but I, I do love uh, ministry and I feel like I, I'm getting away with something. All through these years, it is hard work, but it's the kind of work that I don't even feel like it's work. Uh, it's, it's, um, it's fun doing what I get to do. And, um, and, uh, and I, I think that that's kind of the idea. These priests are supposed to keep it simple, light, uh, not putting on wool or anything that causes sweat. So number one, ministry of simplicity. Number two, a ministry of humility, verse nineteen. And when they go forth into the outer court, even into the outer court to the people, they shall put off their garments wherein they ministered, and lay them in the holy chambers, and shall put on their other garments. Uh, and they shall not sanctify the people with their garments. In other words, they're supposed to blend in with all the people as just normal dudes. Um, they're not to wear their fancy priestly duds out when they're with the people. Um, isn't that funny that you know the church? You know, we kind of done the opposite historically where the churches wear the fancy robes and the pointy hats and a glorious, you know, regalia of living in the ministry and stuff. I think that's a goof. I think we're supposed to just kind of blend in. What did Jesus do? Did he have a pointy? If anybody should have a pointy hat, if you needed a pointy hat, like Jesus should have got a pointy hat. But Jesus is like, no, I'm gonna just blend in. And he only had literally one change of garments. Like, like Jesus wasn't a flashy person. And somewhere along the way, I think we've been very misguided, but it was a ministry of humility. Um, and then thirdly, on the list of things here, we see a ministry of moderation. Um, verse 20, neither shall they shave their heads nor suffer their locks to grow long. They shall only pull their heads, which means kind of a, uh, not shaving, not letting it grow long, but right in the middle. Just kind of keep it medium length, moderation. Uh, nothing too radical as for the priests but also a ministry of sobriety. Neither shall they, verse 21, any priest drink wine when they enter into the inner court. Um, why, why is that? Um, you know, I believe it's what Proverbs 31 reminds uh, us. There's uh, where Solomon's mother said, it is not for kings, O Lemuel, not for kings to drink wine, nor princes strong drink, lest they forget the law, pervert the judgment of any of the afflicted. Give strong drink to him that is ready to perish and wine to those that are of heavy hearts. Um, let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his misery no more. Like that's a pretty strong word there. And if you're doing ministry, these guys were not supposed to be drinking. They're supposed to keep their faculties sharp um, and uh, not be given to that you know, uh, indulgence, but rather sobriety. That's That's number four. And then number five on our list, we see here, Uh, In verse 23, purity, pardon me, verse 22, neither shall they take for their wives a widow nor her that is put away, but they shall take maidens of the seed of the house of Israel or a widow that hath a priest before. So the Lord had them set very much aside for a specific purpose. And they were to be very careful about that in their purity. Verse uh, 23 brings us the sixth of the Uh, ministry rules of the Zadokian priesthood. And they shall teach my people with uh, the difference between the holy and the profane and cause them to discern between the unclean and the clean. That is just giving them discernment. They were to teach discernment. They were to have discernment. uh, Number six. And then uh, finally, number seven, they were to be biblical. Um, Biblical. Verse 24. I didn't put that one on my list. Sorry. Um, but that, number seven, and in the controversy, um, they shall stand in judgment and shall judge it according to my judgments. And they shall keep my laws and my statutes in mine assemblies, and they shall hallow my Sabbaths. That's all the word, that's the scripture, them, the, them knowing what the Bible says. That's what pastors need today. And uh, verse 25, they shall come at no dead person to defile themselves but for father or for mother or for son or for daughter, uh, for brother or sister that hath no husband, they may uh, defile themselves. After he is cleansed, they shall reckon unto him seven days. And in the day that he goeth into the sanctuary, into the inner court, to minister in the sanctuary, he shall offer his sin offering, saith the Lord God. And it shall be unto them for an inheritance. I am their inheritance, and you shall give them no possession in Israel. I am their possession. Now this makes some people like, huh, what's this about God being their possession? Well, they're serving God. They're living amongst Jesus who's there. He's like, they get the privilege of being at the foot of of the throne of God. Like this is an honor um, and a privilege. And this is what the Lord's saying. And verse 29, they shall eat the meat offering and the sin offering and the trespass offering and every dedicated thing in Israel shall be theirs. Um, That's the stuff that's gonna be at the sacrifice, the the bullocks and the meat that comes from that with the salt that they put on it. uh, Sounds pretty good to me. Uh, (laughs) uh, They get to eat all that. And verse 30, the first of all, the first fruits of all uh, of things and every oblation of all, of every sort of your oblation shall be the priest. Ye shall also give unto the priest the first of your dough. <laughs> uh, whether that be dough uh, with you know, flour or dough with dollar signs on it, I don't know. That he may cause the blessing to result in thine house, or to rest in thine house. Um, the priest shall not eat of anything that is dead of itself or torn, whether it be fowl or beast." In other words, it's got to be fresh. It can't be like a raccoon they found on the side of the road. And then, uh, you know, roadkill grill it up, you know. Um, By the way, did you see on the news, uh, there there there's a bunch of red tides. I think over in Florida, the red tides are killing all these fish. But the fishermen are just going into the red tide and scooping up all the dead fish uh, that the red tide killed it. And they're going to sell that to you. Uh, So delicious. Dead fish that they got out of the water. I don't know. I'm not much of a fish fan. I'll stick with the, the ribeye with the salt uh, that the priest could eat. <laughs> now you say, Brett, I don't know, man, all this stuff about the temple and stuff. And, and obviously we don't know everything about this time period. Hey, this speaks of several things, but one of the main things is God's faithful. He's gonna do what he says he's gonna do um, this is all gonna come to pass. And when you see it, when I see it, we'll know this is God being faithful to do what he said he was gonna do. This will only be confirmed. You're like, I remember that tedious Wednesday night when we were talking about the sons of Zadok and, and all these uh, steps and buildings and all this weird stuff. Like, oh, but look, now this has come to pass. Like you will know it when you see it. Why? Because you put the time in this Wednesday night to study this section of the scriptures. That's pretty cool, I think. Good job. Lord, we're so thankful for your word. We're thankful that it's living and powerful. Uh, Lord, I do pray that you would reward each person here watching online or here in the building. Would you just reward them as as just going through your word, Lord, is a good thing. And there's so many benefits that we know come from it. So take this time. Lord, for for some, I pray that they dig even deeper. uh, That they do the homework, Lord, because there's so much here that I know we're missing. Uh, But we do look forward to understanding this in its fullness someday. When we see you, we'll be like you. Look forward to that, Lord. And pray your blessing on these, your people as we go our way tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.